Well, good afternoon to all of you. Uh, if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. My name is Jesse, if you don't know me. Uh, welcome to Zoe Community Church. Uh, we'd love for you to stick around a little bit afterwards. Um, one thing that I was thinking, even as the church has been growing a little bit, and some of you are new and like, this is growing, but uh, you should have seen it last year. Uh, but Zoe has been growing, uh, but it's still a small church. So I feel like one of the benefits of small church is you can actually get to know people. Maybe that's what you're scared of. But I'm assuming, you know, you came here and you saw the website, so you know it's not that big. Uh, so stick around. Hopefully we can get to know you and welcome you and we can kind of uh, get together as the body of Christ. Theologically, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that. But I think sometimes we need a little encouragement to live that out. So if you could stick around, that'd be great. But, okay, if you need to go somewhere or something, that's cool too. Okay, no judgment. Uh, it's all good. Now, if you could open your Bibles to First Samuel... The book of First Samuel. At Zoe, our one thing, our one thing is just the Bible. Okay, if anything, that's what we're into, teaching the Bible, trying to live our lives according to what God says in his word, and really trying to cultivate a love for the word of God itself. Okay, just the Bible. And, you know, we do try our best, but at the end of the day, if it's not enough for us that God has breathed out these words to us, then what are we even doing? Right? Of course, we're going to try to make it interesting and try to be as dynamic as possible, which for us is not like that high, but we're going to try. But at the end of the day, it's really just about this text. It's about God's word, what he says in the scripture. So we're going through 1 Samuel 16. So you could turn there uh, to chapter 16 if you're not there already. We've been going through Samuel. We're going to go through both First and Second Samuel. In the Hebrew, it was just one book, so we're going to do both. Uh, we've been going through this book now for a while, since the beginning of the year. We took a break for a little while to go through Proverbs, but we're back in First Samuel. We're in chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 23, so the second half of this chapter. Let me read it, and then we'll get into it. First Samuel 16, starting in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful and plain, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. Verse 21, And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and, all, uh, and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word. God, we know that your word is living, that it is active, that you breathe it out, that you inspired it. God, that it is useful for teaching and for reproof and for correcting and for training in righteousness. God, that your word gives us faith. So God, I pray that you would use your word to do what only your word can do. And God, would you open up our hearts how would you open up our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word? Would you open up our ears to hear what you are saying in your word? And God, I pray that this time would be a blessing to us and most importantly, glorifying to you. God, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have you ever compared yourself to other people? You know, like, oh, you know, I'm not that good at this, but at least I'm better than that guy. Or maybe I want to be like this person because they have something that I want or I want to model myself after them. Maybe you're not someone who compares yourself a lot, but you're the victim of comparison. Maybe people always compare you. Maybe your parents always compared you to your older sibling. 
why can't you be more like Jesse? Right? That's what they tell my sisters all the time. You're the spitting image of your dad. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, all that kind of stuff. Some of us hate that. Some of us don't mind. But the thing is, whether or not we hate comparison or we love it, we invite it, we do it ourselves, no matter how we approach it, the thing is, comparison can be helpful. It can help us know where we measure up. It can even help us know who we are. Now, years ago, I heard this story. uh, And since it's the Olympics right now, I think it's doubly relevant. It has to do with our passage, but it also has to do with an Olympian. But I heard this story about this woman named Jill Viles. Okay, Jill Viles was not the Olympian. She was just a normal person. She was born in the 70s. Shout out Gen Xers out here. Uh, But that's kind of when she grew up at a certain time. She was normal and ordinary at birth. She developed normally. She could walk. She could talk. They tracked her milestones, her parents. But when she was four years old, all of a sudden, she had trouble walking again. She started falling a lot. And it wasn't because she was uncoordinated or because she was awkward in any way. She said she described it like hands were like pulling her legs down. And she she kept falling. So her parents took her to the doctor, and he didn't know what was going on. So they took him to a specialist. Eventually, she ended up at the Mayo Clinic. Okay, and the reason why she was there is because they have, like, this most special of specialists there. And all they could say, really, was she probably has some form of muscular dystrophy. So they sent her home, and she kind of was okay for a while. She could, she could walk and ride her bike, but she kind of had trouble. Um, but as she grew, she was so skinny in her arms and legs. She maxed out at 5'3", 87 pounds. And her torso was normal. It's just her limbs were, like, really skinny. She said she looked like a snowman. Or, like, she had, like, a normal body, but she had, like, twigs for arms and legs. Kids could wrap their entire hand around her arms. She was that skinny. Turns out she had a form of muscular dystrophy called Emery Dreyfus. It was genetic. They found out her dad had a milder form of it. Uh, It wasn't as uh, extreme. But he ended up dying of complications from it, sadly, But this scared Jill, as you can imagine. Not only was she struggling to walk, eventually she stopped being able to walk when she was older. Not only did she struggle to get around, she felt like the gravity was turned up on her body, but her dad died. She looked up the life expectancy. It was about 40 years old, and she was like 20-something. She's like, I don't have that much more time. She started researching everything she could. The problem was it led her nowhere. It led her nowhere. Finally, she decided to give up, just live the rest of her life, as fully as she could, until she saw this picture of an Olympic hurdler named Priscilla Lopez sleep. It was kind of random. Her sister showed her this picture of this woman, and at first she didn't even really know what she was looking at, because if you know Priscilla, she got the bronze medal, I think, in Beijing. Uh, If you've seen her before, you might remember her. She's unnaturally muscular. She's extremely, like, buff, for a woman, for just a person, and she's extremely defined. She has, like, no fat on her body, even more than a normal elite athlete. So when Priscilla saw this picture, at first she thought it had nothing to do with her, but then she realized, I'm looking at the person, the one person in the world who is the exact opposite of me. She said it was kind of like that M. Night Shyamalan movie, Unbreakable. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that movie because it's not that good. But she saw her opposite, And Jill had a thought. When she saw this person who was her physical antithesis, she thought, there's got to be something here. There's got to be some way that we are connected or something I can learn about her genetics, something that might be able to help me. I think Priscilla is the key. Now, we'll come back to the story. But the thing is, comparisons can be useful. They can shine a light on things that we might not have looked at or considered earlier. They can help us to better understand where we're at, how we stack up, who we are. They can give us a fresh perspective on ourselves. It's a fascinating story about these two people, but it's not as fascinating, I think, as the story that we're going to get into right here. I mean, we read it, okay, by way of introduction. You kind of understand, I think, where we're getting at. This passage sets us, uh, sets before us two men to compare. Saul and David, the new king side by side with the old king. And this comparison, this contrast will actually continue until the end of this book. Until the end of 1 Samuel, the fates of these two men are going to be intertwined. You can't talk about one really without talking about the other. 
And this passage right here, it's kind of overlooked sometimes because it's right before David and Goliath. But this passage is where these two men meet for the first time. This is the first time they breathe the same air in the same room. For us as the readers, as the watchers of this story, this is the first time that we see them in the same frame. We're able to get a good look of how they stack up together. And it's wild how it happens, too, how God sovereignly pulls the strings to get David, of all people, into the presence of the king. But First Samuel clearly wants to show us who David is by painting his portrait against the backdrop of Saul, son of Gish. Before we see David versus Goliath, before we see David and Bathsheba, before we see David versus Absalom, we see David and Saul. And this passage, this passage is where they first get together. Now, we're going to learn a lot about David by seeing who he is in comparison to Saul, and of course the other way around. But this is where their lives intertwine with us too, lest we forget. We're shown these men, we kind of have an inside look into their lives and into their actions, into their hearts even. Even though they're kings, even though they lived in a country far, far away a long, long time ago, they are still human beings like us with a nature like ours. They lived in the presence of the same God that we do. And I bring this all up to say, this is where we often get stuck. Because we look at David and we think he's great, he's the good guy. We look at Saul and we say he's terrible, he's the bad guy. So the application is simple for every single one of these passages. Look at David and try to model your life after his. Look at Saul and try to avoid at all costs. Don't copy him. Copy this other guy. The temptation to think is that David and Saul are antitheses. That if you're looking for the one person who's the opposite of Saul, who we've already seen as a failure, it would be David. But that's not exactly how this goes. I think surprisingly, that's not the takeaway at all. So let's get into it. We'll see kind of how this unfolds. But we'll break down this narrative in three parts, in three headings, under three headings, like we usually do. First, the condemnation, then the choice, then the contrast. First, the condemnation. The condemnation, which challenges us to compare ourselves to Saul. Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul... And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, what we see here is God condemning Saul for things that we already saw previously in the book. But the condemnation is twofold. Something good is taken. Something bad is given. So first, let's focus on what is taken. The Holy Spirit of God leaves Saul. Now, you might not really get what this is, okay? So let's just do a quick refresher on how the Holy Spirit has been working in this book. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is said to rush upon people. That's the language used in Judges and in 1 Samuel. The Holy Spirit is a person, but he empowers people as God for certain tasks. So when the Bible is talking in 1 Samuel about the Holy Spirit, it's not necessarily talking about salvation or eternal security or anything like that, forgiveness of sins, heaven. This has to do with God's help, God's direction, and God's power. So for example, just to make it concrete, with Samson. Samson was not the buffest guy around. It wasn't because he worked out a lot that he was strong. Okay, the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson, and when the Holy Spirit empowered him, Samson was the strongest guy in the world. He had supernatural strength to fight his enemies. We saw the Spirit rush upon Saul when he first got anointed, and he could prophesy. Do you remember that? And people were like, is Saul also among the prophets? Because Saul was no prophet at all. And yet with the Holy Spirit's empowering, he was able to prophesy. The Spirit meant power. But the Spirit is also more than power. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is God. So what the text is saying is not only is Saul left alone to do this work of being king, to fight battles without the power of the Spirit, he also has been abandoned by the presence of God. And this is a big deal, okay, to put it mildly. Adam and Eve, when they plunged the world into sin and death, kind of ruining everything, what was their punishment? I mean, eventual death. But their immediate punishment was that they were exiled from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. The punishment for sin, you get pushed away from God. You see this with Israel. They had the temple of God in their midst, but because of their sin and unfaithfulness, because they broke the covenant, 
God exiled them out of the promised land. He made them leave, and his spirit actually left the temple and like flew away visibly just to show them that he was going to abandon them because of their sin. Hell itself is what? It's eternal separation from God. See, Saul loses out on the power of God, but he also has forfeited the presence of God from his life. See, God condemns Saul by pushing him away, by leaving. Now, have you ever seen the movie Home Alone? Any of you guys see it? Yeah, I know you guys are Christian. You don't watch movies. It's rated G, I think. I don't know. I, I, just, I just heard about it. I, never, I don't watch movies either. Um, it's easy to remember the silly stuff in Home Alone, right? Where they're like fighting burglars, where he's fighting burglars. But there's kind of this sentimental plot that runs throughout the story. And it starts in the beginning. So Kevin is this kid, right? He lives in Chicago. And he has this big family, and they're going to go on a trip to Paris, whatever. Uh, but the night before they leave, he gets in a fight with his brother. Do you guys remember this? Just, I'll just inform you, since you, you guys don't watch movies. Um, he gets in a fight uh, with his brother, Buzz, because Buzz ate all the plain cheese pizza. I'm giving you too many details, sorry. Uh, I see this movie every year at Christmas. Um, get in a fight, they cause a big mess, and the family doesn't blame Buzz for provoking Kevin, but they blame Kevin, the youngest kid, and Kevin feels like it's totally unfair. He feels like people look down on him. People talk bad about him. People don't care about him. So they banish him to the attic. And on his way up, he tells his mom, look, I never want to see you guys again. Right? And his mom, I mean, I think if you're a parent here, you can kind of feel for the parents this time. But she feels kind of hurt by this. She's like, you don't mean that, Kevin. He's like, actually, I do. I never want to see any of you guys ever again. In fact, earlier he even said, when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. Doesn't really understand marriage. But you get the point. I'm living alone. I want to be by myself. The next day, his family goes on the trip. They forget him. They leave him home alone. Okay, that's why it's called home alone. And Kevin wakes up, and he doesn't realize what happened, and he thinks that his wish to never see his family again came true. And at first, remember, he's really happy about it. He's like pumped. He can do whatever he wants. No one's telling him what to do. But as time goes on, all he wants is to be with his family again. So at the end, you know, they're kind of happy and they hug and everything. Even Buzz says, you're all right, Kevin. They give each other a bump. The thing is, why do I bring this up? Saul, why did God leave Saul? Do you remember? Do you remember Saul ever saying, I never want to see you again. I hope I never see you again as long as I live. Next time I become king, I'm living alone. He doesn't say that. In fact, honestly, I, I think even Saul would have recognized the foolishness of saying such a thing. It's a dangerous world out there with the Philistines around, the Ammonites, all these enemies. He doesn't want God to leave. Saul never said those words. So why did God leave? Well, that's what Saul communicated with his life. Let me show you as a refresher. 1 Samuel 13, turn there, a couple pages back. To refresh you on the context, Samuel says, wait for me to offer the sacrifice. He's talking to Saul. The most simple instructions of all time. But Samuel's a little late. And Saul, scared that he is losing his grip on the people, panicked and offered the sacrifice himself, even though he's not a prophet or a priest, without Samuel. And then Samuel shows up like right after, perfect timing. And he's like, you had one job, man. First Samuel 13, look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And then we just saw it last chapter, chapter 15. God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, to not bring back any spoils of war. This isn't about getting more stuff. This is about righting a wrong. So what does Saul do? Do you remember this? Saul takes spoils of war. Saul keeps the king alive, probably for a trophy for himself, that he was a winner. And Samuel shows up and he says, why didn't you obey, man? Like, this, this already happened. You know that God wants you to do what he wants you to do. And Saul, he says, I did obey. And Samuel's like, you think I'm an idiot, right? I can hear the animals. And then Saul says, oh, that. The reason, okay, the reason why I disobeyed is actually to sacrifice to God. I disobeyed for God. And Samuel is not impressed by this four-dimensional chess. 
He says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and, the Lord, uh, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Listen, it's simple, but it's scary. If we haven't gotten this message by now, I think it should be clear in 1 Samuel 16, when we reject God's word, he rejects us. Let me say that again. When you reject God's word, he rejects you or me. You don't have to say, get out of here. I never want to see you again. You just have to not care about what he says. Now, Christian here, okay, theologically minded person here, you might know, okay, you might be thinking this even. Well, I'm a Christian, right? I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1. I know that the Spirit will never leave me. God won't forsake me. The Holy Spirit is a gift that will never depart. And you are right in a sense, okay? The new covenant is beautiful partially because of this. You are sealed with God's very Spirit if you're truly a believer. However, It is possible to grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, by how you live. It's possible to lose out on the power of God. It's possible to forfeit the closeness of God's presence and intimacy with Him. And this is where I think we need to pause. Because some of us, if we're being real, we never actually feel that close with God. Am I right? It's not all about feelings, okay? It's not all about feelings, but I'm just saying you never feel that way. And you know it, and you're wondering why. You might read about certain things in the Bible, right? How come I don't have the peace that transcends understanding? I don't understand what it says when the Bible says that there is a love to experience that surpasses knowledge in Ephesians. It doesn't make sense to you. You've never felt it. You've never experienced it. You rarely ever feel close to God. And I wonder if it's because we push God away, so to speak, with our disobedience, with our rebellion, with our perpetual justifications for why we don't do what God tells us to do. I mean, think about our own life, our own lives, your own life. I mean, I complain, sure. I know God says don't complain, but I complain because have you met my neighbors or my coworkers? Have you met the people at Zoe? My kids? I have to complain. This yoke is too heavy for me to bear. I know God says don't gossip, but I'm not gossiping. I'm just sharing prayer requests. I know God says you will have none before me, but there are certain things that are just really important to me right now, God. You understand, right? I got to build my own life right now, and I will come back later, most likely. I'll keep you on the back burner. I'll come back, but right now I have other stuff going on. And then we wonder why God seems so distant. Yes, the Holy Spirit has promised to Christians forever, but are we taking that for granted? One commentator I read wrote, he says, what is true of individuals is also true of the church. Our ministry is nothing without the Holy Spirit. What can the church accomplish if it has the most effective programs, the most well-financed advertising, the most polished musical performers, and the most attractive celebrity speakers. Such churches can accomplish much in a worldly sense, but virtually nothing of spiritual value. And then he goes on to say, nothing of the world can compensate for the loss of God's Spirit, but with the Spirit's power, even the weakest of God's people can do mighty things. The Spirit leaves Saul. Now, before we get to the second point, we need to talk about what God gives too, because God doesn't just depart, uh, he doesn't just leave Saul, he, he also adds something to Saul's life. Verse 14, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So the Holy Spirit leaves, and then he sends a spirit, lowercase, to torment Saul. Now, people have a lot of trouble with this, like what does that even mean? Right? Is this a demon? Is this some angel that God sends to mess with Saul? Some translations say an evil spirit, so we get messed up there too. Like, how could God send something that is evil explicitly to Saul? 
Because God isn't evil. God never tempts us to sin. What is going on? Well, first of all, God isn't evil, but nothing happens without his permission. We talked about Job a lot in our Proverbs series. Satan himself had to ask for permission to torment Job. Do you remember that? It's possible that Satan has had his eye on Saul this whole time. I mean, you'd think he would, right? Saul is the king of God's people on earth. He's probably the most important person on earth at that point. Maybe God had a barrier of protection around him, and now he's like, have at it. You can get Saul if you want now. That could be it. But most likely, I think it's just God sent some kind of spirit to mess with Saul, just like the ESV said, to torment him. Something to make his life harder. It doesn't mean that the spirit is evil, per se, or bad even. It's just, it's just that this is condemnation upon Saul. And the harsh truth is, is that Saul deserves it and more. I said, what is hell if not separation from God? It's actually more than that. It's actually God's wrath. It's eternal conscious torment by the justice, the judgment of God. Saul is in a bad place, in other words. And this leads to the second point, the choice. We see the condemnation of Saul. We see the choice of David. And this invites us to compare ourselves also to David as a new character, you could say, enters the screen. Verse 15. Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. It's like, okay, thanks, guys. You got any more advice for me? But no, really, this is some good insight. Okay, this is exactly what the narrator is telling us is going on. I mean, if you think about it, we don't even know if Saul realized what was happening. But he has some perceptive people around him. They correctly diagnose that the problem has to do with his relationship with God. See, it's possible in the Hebrew here that it's not even an external spirit at all. It's not an angel or a demon. It's, it's that God changed something in Saul's demeanor. That he gave him depression or bipolar or something like this. A lot of people think that that is the case. But they understand that no matter what it is, no matter how it's presenting, they get that it comes from God. Something changed between Saul and heaven above. So what's the plan? Verse 16, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. The plan is get some music up in here. Right? That's what he wants. And I like how the servants specifically suggest a man who is skillful. Okay, they want someone who is good. And Saul is like, yeah, make sure you get me someone who is skilled, who can play well. Kind of reminds me of this story. I had a, a, so back in, a, back in the day, I guess, I was part of this young adult fellowship at church. Uh, we just had like these singles together. It was like a group of people. Uh, we would have like musical worship and a sermon and stuff. And we needed someone to play guitar to lead us in singing. And we had a friend uh, and we had heard he played guitar, okay, that he had led worship before a few times. I'd never seen it. But we had heard about him. So we asked him, we're like, hey, man, can you lead on so-and-so Thursday? Right? He's like, I'm not that good. Okay, to be honest, I know I've led before. I can technically play, but I'm just telling you I'm not that good. And we're like, stop. Right? Just stop being modest. Okay, you can just lead. It's okay. We're not going to judge you for being prideful. So he's like, okay, fine. I'll lead. So he gets up there, and he uh, leads us in a few songs. And then afterwards, we're all like, oh, he wasn't being modest, right? He was actually just being honest. No hate to this guy. Afterwards, it was like, we're really sorry we made you do that in public, man. And he never did it again. They wanted someone who is skilled. Now, keep this in mind, okay? As one of the younger servants goes, I actually know of a guy who is skilled, verse 18. Keep it in mind, though, the skill. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. It's interesting. God sent Samuel, his servant, to seek out the guy he wanted in the last passage, and it was David. Saul now wants his servants to seek out the guy he wanted, and guess what? It's also David. What does this say about David? That he is both God's first choice and he is also Saul's first choice. Well, look at what the young servant says more closely. 
This is his, uh, just his own personal read on David, but this is good, okay? This is more of an objective look at who he is, how a rando stranger would see him. Remember, Jesse, he saw God, uh, he saw David as an afterthought. God could see, you know, into David's heart, but we can't see that. Samuel saw him as a rugged, good-looking kid, not bad, but he was also looking for a king, and he knew it wasn't any of the other brothers, so he knew it was him. So if anyone can help us see David the way we as normal people might see David, it would probably be this young servant. So how does he see him? One, he's qualified for this task. It says that he shreds on the lyre, but look, a man of valor, a man of war. We have to remember that even though David was young, even though he was out with the sheep, he lived in a time of war. The Philistines were always around. David probably fought in a few skirmishes. David, he fought bears and lions. I mean, you could tell by looking at him at least a little bit that this guy knows how to get himself out of a scrap. Maybe he had been involved in some fights that this guy had seen. He's also brave. He's strong. He moves like a fighter. And here's the thing about David. There's a tension in this guy. Not only does God like him and Saul like him, he's also this poet, like tender-hearted musician guy. At the same time, he is this warrior who's good at fighting, who inspires confidence in battle. He's good with words. He's a man of good presence. He makes a good impression. People like having him around. I mean, when you read this, it's almost like this is the guy who was probably voted best all around by his peers at Bethlehem High School. I mean, you look at him and he's like, this is the best guy around. His resume is impeccable. He's not just qualified, he's overqualified. And this is why he comes to mind right away. This is why he is chosen. See, the Bible doesn't portray David as the scrub, as, as this bum, this loser who the world hates, but God somehow chooses him and supernaturally fast-tracks him to the throne to show that it's all about God's choice. David is actually the most qualified person. Do you see that? David is chosen by the king because in the world's eyes, David is great. And there's a lesson in here. There's a lesson in here. David is definitely portrayed as positive. In fact, you could say he exemplifies the qualities we talked about when we were going through the Proverbs. Remember the Proverbs talked about wisdom, and wisdom to the Hebrew mind is not just about knowledge. It's about knowledge applied. It's about being skillful at life. See, David is not just skillful at the liar. He's skillful at everything. He's skillful with his words. He's skillful in battle. He's skillful in how he interacts with people. His resume is good And the point is, at least one of the points so far is, resumes do matter. That's why he is chosen. So the question is, what is your resume like? And I don't mean like for your job, you know, where you put down like, my greatest weakness is I care too much or I work too hard. I'm talking about your actual resume, maybe that no one sees besides God. What are your actual strengths and weaknesses? Who are you really? Not just the best version of yourself that you put on social media or you put on before you meet people or when you go to church. Who is the person that you actually are when no one is looking? David was out with the sheep. He had no idea this position was even going to become available. He didn't know people were watching him. He was the youngest kid of Jesse, and yet he lived like this in the shadows. So the question is, how are you living in the shadows? It's a good question to ask. If a rando stranger was looking at you and looked at your life, what would he say about how you conduct yourself? And not that we care so much about the opinion of man or we put that on a pedestal, but just to get an objective view at who we are. I mean, think about this, okay? If you've been here, have you applied anything from our series on Proverbs you don't have to tell me. It's okay. Don't, don't discourage me. No, I'm just kidding. I know some of you guys have. Okay, I'm just saying, though, for the sake of introspection, godly introspection, have you applied anything? Think about money. That was the hardest one, I think. That's why I had Eric preach it. But did that sermon from Proverbs, did that truth from Proverbs, forget the sermon, just did those verses, did those Proverbs, did they change anything about how you deal with your bank account in the past few weeks? Or did they have no effect at all? 
Would some rando be able to look at you and say, wow, she's really a faithful steward when it comes to money. Must be the word of God. What about speech? What about how we talk? You might not be up here talking in public, but has anything changed in how you talk in general? Or do you still complain the same amount? Do you still gossip the same amount? Do you still coarse jest the same amount? Do you still lie the same amount? If we were looking for someone to help lead a community group or something, would some random person be able to say, oh yeah, right? he's just prudent in speech. Great fit. See, the thing is, Who we are in the shadows is often who we are. Luke 16.10 says, One one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Some of us, we try to turn it on at the last second when someone's looking or when we're asked to lead. But that's too late. David is ready. Saul says, sounds good, verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. So not a bad gift for the king, okay, just to put it out there. Jesse isn't poor. He might not be king level, but he's doing all right for himself. And if you think about it, this is kind of crazy, right? Because Samuel showed up. Everyone was scared because they didn't know why he was there. Samuel anoints David as king and now Saul is calling for David, doesn't say why. I mean, maybe Jesse's thinking, okay, they found out that something's going on with him. Maybe he's going to kill him. So this might be the last time that they ever see their little boy. So they send him off, verse 21. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And you're like, okay, this might be bad. And Saul loved him greatly. Phew. And he became his armor bearer. See, you're going to see this throughout the text. But this is the charm of David. Everyone who meets him loves him. When the Bible says he's attractive, it doesn't just mean in a romantic sense. There's something about him that's winsome. There's something about him that people love right away. People fall in love with David. And Saul, he grows to hate David, okay, just putting it out there. But the only reason he grows to hate him is because too many people love David. He's jealous. See, Saul at first thinks he's awesome. Now look at verse 22. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. You can't make this up. David found favor in God's sight. Now David finds favor in Saul's sight. Verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. So the plan seems to work pretty well. I would say. Okay, they say, get a guy to play some music. I think it'll help you. David plays, seems to work like a charm. But if you zoom out for a moment and consider the bigger picture, what's going on here? Okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to venture to say that what's going on with this music here is actually the key to understanding who Saul is, really. Now, let's break it down. Okay, there's no doubt that the music helps. It says so right here in the text. The harmful spirit departs. And this is interesting because I don't know about you, okay? I don't know if you've seen, I know you guys don't watch movies, but whenever you see like Hollywood depict like demon possession, you don't just bust out the liar to exorcise the demon. Okay, supernatural danger requires a supernatural response, not some kid on a guitar, right? Singing some emo songs. But the music does help. And this highlights the power and danger of music. We don't often talk about music biblically, but it's right here in the text. And the Bible does talk about music a lot. The Psalms are music. The New Testament talks about singing new songs, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, etc., etc. We see here the power of music. It actually helps Saul in the moment. And some of you guys do know how this works. When you're dealing with anxiety or when you're feeling down, you play some of your favorite tunes or whatever, and it helps you feel better. Some of you guys, when you need to get pumped up a little bit, you put on some songs and it helps you get ready for the gym or to worship God or whatever you're going to do. Music can help us to experience emotion. In fact, music can actually help us experience the truth to a certain extent. There's a reason why the Bible tells us to sing and not just speak. Okay, why the Psalms aren't just poems, but they're songs meant to be sung. 
music has emotional power. It can even kind of draw us in some way toward the presence of God. It can focus our minds and our hearts. However, this power of music is also the danger. And we see this right here. And if you're someone who your favorite part of church is the music, or the thing that really like you're particular about is the worship, or, or you're someone who loves listening to certain music, or you have favorite Christian songs that help you in your walk, this is an important lesson to learn. The music, it does refresh Saul and he as well, and the harmful spirit departs. But what is missing in the text? It's only half of the equation. Do you see that? The harmful spirit departs, but does anything come back? The spirit of the Lord doesn't come back. See, the solution is temporary. The core root of the problem is still there. God has left Saul, and the danger now is that he doesn't realize that he's still in danger. The danger now is that he's feeling better, so he's even less inclined to repent and turn back to God, to miss the presence of God. It's like breaking your leg, and instead of, you know, like going to the doctor or getting it set or putting a cast on, you just pop Tylenol for the rest of your life, and you think that you're good. We live in a day and age, you know, where music, okay, is so high quality. It's so good, and I think that's a good thing so high level, it's ambient, we've gotten so good at creating an atmosphere that it's easy nowadays especially to do the same thing that Saul is doing. You put on the music and you feel better, but at the end of the day, you never actually sought the presence of God. I think sometimes we actually mistake the music for the presence of God. And it reminds me of this kid that I met years ago when I was a college pastor. Someone emailed me and he said, look, this kid I know from my church is moving down to your area in LA and he's going to go to college there. Can you reach out to him because he's really struggling with his faith a lot? And I was like, I'll try. I'll try to reach out to him. So he shows up at our church and before I even met him, right, I saw him because I knew what he looked like. He was sitting like near the front and he was standing up and they were playing music and he was singing louder than any single person in the church probably. He was so into it. He was raising his arms and his hands, you know, he's closing his eyes but I knew that he was struggling in his heart. So really what I felt like I was seeing was a guy who was trying to like connect with God in some way. Like he wanted it to be real. Like he was trying to seek something. So I met him afterwards and we talked and he talked about his doubts and, and how he was struggling. And I only saw him maybe like one or two times ever again after that. And I remember the last time I saw him, he was at church and it was like the same setting, but he didn't sing at all. He just looked around at everybody and he just let the music play. And I could tell just looking at him. Because I kind of looked at him and he was kind of looking at me a little bit. So I guess I wasn't singing either. Um, but we saw each other. And I could tell he was like, it's not real because I don't feel anything. There's nothing wrong with emotional worship. In fact, it's supposed to be emotional. You know, like, we would like things to be a little bit more ambient maybe. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. David was skilled. But we have to understand that the skill of the musicians, the quality of the music, the atmosphere, it actually has nothing to do with the presence of God in of itself. And if we can't sing to God with all of our hearts without music in the shadows, then what are we even doing? You see what I'm saying? If you can't get excited unless some guy is up there who's really, really good at guitar, then maybe it's not God that we're after at all at the end of the day. See, the reason why I say this music thing tells us about Saul is because, because Saul, all he's thinking of all the time is what's on the surface. Get me the best musician. Oh, he played good. Now I'm feeling better. Saul is all about the surface. Even himself, why he was chosen, because he's the tallest and the best looking. It's all about what is great in man's eyes. And this leads to the third and final point quickly now. The contrast. So we see the condemnation, right? Saul is condemned for his sin. The Spirit of God leaves him. We see the choice. David is chosen, but he's chosen because of what's external, not what's internal necessarily. He was chosen by God for what's internal, but he was chosen by Saul for what was external. The contrast. Let's compare these two guys, which is what we've been waiting for this whole time. But first, Jill and Priscilla, let me tell you a little bit more about them. 
Jill saw a picture of Priscilla. She saw her on TV. The problem was Priscilla was an Olympian and Jill was just a random Iowa mom. She didn't know how to connect with her, how to get in touch with her. So she gave up. She's like, okay, I have a theory, but I don't know what's going to happen until about a year later, maybe a few months later, she's watching Good Morning America. And there's a doctor who's on there talking about genetic abnormalities and elite athletes. And she's like, I'm going to reach out to this doctor. I'm just going to try. And turns out this doctor had a connection with Priscilla lopez Sleep. And she's like, okay, we want to study, or the doctor's like, we want to study kind of your genetics. And there's someone who has a theory about you. And they got them together in the same room. And this is the interesting thing. At first, Priscilla's like, sure, I'll meet this person. You know, she's used to meeting fans and stuff like that. They're going to talk. She knows that there's something going on with her because her muscles weren't hormonal, okay? It wasn't steroids. There was something about her actual muscles that was different. So they meet. And on the surface, Priscilla, you know, she saw Jill, and Jill saw Priscilla, and they saw each other, and everyone in the world, in the room, in the world, saw them as the exact opposite on the outside, But when they saw each other and when they compared their arms and legs, they realized that actually, maybe we're the same. Because here's the thing. Remember with Jill, she had these twig arms like a snowman. She had no fat on her limbs. And Priscilla, she was muscled, but really what set her apart too was that she had no fat on her limbs. And the pattern of even like how their muscles connected and their veins was exactly the same. So even though they looked like opposites, they were like, maybe we should test Priscilla's genetic code. And they did. And turns out they had the exact same typo, they called it, on the exact same gene. It just expressed a little differently. One turned on crazy muscle, one turned off all the muscle. Now, why do I bring this up? Because on the surface, again, like I said, you think they were the exact opposite, But the truth was, they were actually very, very similar. Now, we've gone through the text. We've gleaned information about Saul and David. Our mental pictures of them are coming along nicely. So now, let me ask you. Okay, because maybe you guys grew up in the church. You know the story of Saul and David. You know that one guy's a good guy, one guy's a bad guy. But now that we're actually getting into the text and going through an exposition of this text and getting into the details, what's surprising here? You expect one guy to be good, one guy to be bad, but then they start getting described and they look what? They look so similar in so many ways. They are so similar. David is set up before we meet him as a man better than Saul. So we might think that he's going to be someone completely different than Saul. But instead, what we're told is that David is a guy who looks good in the world. What were we told when Saul was first king? That he looks good in the world. Now, by way of analogy, think about it like this. Samson and Samuel. I've been trying to remind you guys of these two guys, um, but let me bring them up for a second. When Samson was born, he was raised as a Nazarite. Okay, you don't have to know exactly what that is, but it meant he couldn't touch dead bodies, couldn't drink alcohol, and that he also couldn't cut his hair. That's why he had that long hair. You remember? That's why we know Samson, partially. And of course, Samson got his hair cut off, and, and then he lost his strength. And we think that his hair had to do with his strength. Not exactly, but, you know, there's kind of a representative thing there. We think of Samson as long hair and strength. Okay, that's the picture that we have of Samson. And then Samuel is born at the beginning of this book. And Samuel is also supposed to be raised as a Nazarite. Do you remember this? So what did that mean for Samuel? No alcohol, no dead bodies, and no haircuts. See, what the Bible is telling us is that Samuel, for all we know, looks exactly like Samson. Their distinctive feature, their hair, is exactly the same. The difference is, okay, so the similarity between them, what it does is it highlights the true contrast. Samson had long hair, and he was strong physically. Samuel has long hair, but he is strong spiritually. Samson had brute strength. Samuel had great character. The reason I bring them up is because you see these two guys who are presented on the surface as looking very similar in the Bible, but when you get beneath the surface, you realize that the difference between them is invisible. And I bring this up because David, as he's described to us so far, if we're being real with the text, he doesn't look so different from Saul. Now, does he? Saul had a pretty well-to-do father, 
not necessarily royal, but well-off enough. David's father was pretty well-to-do, not necessarily royal, but he was well-off enough. Saul was put in charge of the family animals, go find the donkeys. David was put in charge of the family animals, go tend the sheep. Saul won battles. David is a man of war. Saul was tall and good-looking, and he made a good impression once the people saw him. In fact, Samuel himself liked him a lot. David was good-looking, and he made a good impression once people saw him. And Samuel, too, liked him a lot the second he saw him. If you just saw David and Saul side by side and how they're described without putting a liar in their hands, you might not be able to really tell the difference between the two. Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? You can't see it. Just one's younger. So you might expect them to be opposites. But turns out they're actually very, very similar. And that's it, okay? They are similar. And their similarity serves to highlight the only true contrast that the Bible wants us to look at. Do you know what that is? The true contrast, the single most important difference between Saul and David is the presence of God. It's the last thing, the afterthought even, of his resume. And the Lord was with him. What did it say at the end of the last chapter? And the Spirit came upon David and didn't leave him from now on. What does it say at the beginning of our text? It says that the Spirit departed from Saul. The only difference that truly matters is God. See, sometimes we look at this and we're like, got to be more like David. David is so great. In a worldly sense, David is great. But in God's eyes, David's greatness has nothing to do with David. It has everything to do with God's presence. I said resume matters, and it does, but here's the truth. If you think that David is intrinsically better than Saul in some way, you're going to be in for a rude surprise. Because David, honestly, in a lot of ways, is worse than Saul in the end. Saul, okay, he he doesn't wait. Saul, he offers a sacrifice he's not supposed to. He spares some animals. He's kind of a fool. David commits adultery and murder. And yet God says that David is his guy. How? Because it's not in David. It's that God is with him. And where Saul messes up, he asks for music. Where David messes up, he asks for forgiveness. Psalm 51, 11, after David committed said murder and adultery, he prayed to God in desperation, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Guys, resume is important. Who you are your character, your gifts, your talents, it all matters. But church is not about self-improvement for self-improvement's sake. Your gifts do matter, but they don't matter as much as who is with you. See, the thing is, all of these things that we talked about earlier, they're cool. But if you're not someone who is seeking the Lord and valuing His presence with you more than anything else, then all these other things don't matter. So the question is, do you value the presence of God in your life? Maybe only you know the answer to that question, you and God. Are you someone that seeks the Lord when no one else is looking? Do you only sing when the music's good or when the eyes are on you or when you're up on the stage? Do you only study the Bible when there's some lesson to teach? I preach to myself. Are there certain ways that you kind of pacify yourself? I know I'm struggling, so I'm going to go to this. Or do you go to the Lord? You could be the best person in the world's eyes. But if you aren't seeking the Lord with your heart and with your soul, does anything else really matter? See, when we look at David, we're going to see a lot of good things in his life. But you've got to understand, and the Bible is taking us here first, that everything good in his life flowed from the presence of God in his life. He played the liar to worship God. He was skilled at life because he feared the Lord. His courage came from his unwavering trust in God. He was who he was, not because of himself, but because he valued the Lord. So imagine who you'd be if that's who you were inside. I mean, think about your life right now. Imagine how things would be different if you and God, if that was right, if that was the most important thing. Imagine what this church would be like if we prioritized seeking the face of God before everything and anything else. 
We'll close here. One more thing about Jill and Priscilla. Jill's father, I said he passed away from their condition. And the thing is, the reason why is because their bodies don't store fat like normal. They found out, okay, in studying them. The, the fat that they intake, it, it goes into their bloodstream and it just circulates. And eventually you have organ failure or you have a heart attack or something like that. So you have to be very careful about what you eat. The thing is, Priscilla had no idea she even had this or that there was a danger to it. She was so fit. She exercised all the time. She was really muscular. She was an elite athlete. She didn't think she was in danger of a heart attack or organ failure. But when she talked to Jill and they found out that they, are, they were the same genetically, they tested her blood and it was like 15 times the normal amount. She said something like she was one cheeseburger away from death. Maybe she was exaggerating. But she was really that close to having like a heart attack or something. So the truth is, at the end of the day, Jill ended up saving Priscilla's life. It's crazy. And we might say, yeah, genetic defects, of course, there's danger there. Got to get that checked out. But for us, do we take seriously the spiritual danger that we are all in? Not only are Saul and David not so different, you and I, we're not so different from them either. We're born with Adam's spiritual defects. We're born sinners. And not only is this a life and death situation, it has implications eternally for heaven and for hell. You know Saul was going down a bad path. You know David could have gone that way if not for the grace of God. What makes you any different than these two men? Heaven and hell literally hang in the balance. So I would invite you right now to value your own soul. Where are you going? How are you with God? Is God with you or are you cut off from him? And maybe you're thinking, man, I don't know. My life's not that good. I don't know if I'm close to God. Honestly, with how I live, how I've been living, I don't deserve his presence. I'll leave you with this. You know, it's interesting that David was anointed king last passage and that he comes into the throne room, so to speak, in this passage but not as a king. You might think that, right? He's anointed king. He's going to become king. He doesn't become king. Instead, he becomes a what? A servant. And soon he will go through the wilderness. He will be on the run. He will face danger and difficulty. He will have no place to lay his head. And all this before he ever steps foot into the palace as king. But in doing so, he lays the groundwork for us to understand what God's kind of king will be like. David prepares the way for his greater son. See, if David, the best of us, is more like Saul than he is like God, what hope is there? The hope is in God. And this is where we must despair of ourselves and our resumes and turn to God, look upward and repent. God's son left heaven as king. He came down to earth as a what? As a servant. The spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He faced temptation and danger. He even died on a cross. He had no place to lay his head. He gave up so much. Why did he do this? Because he knew that we couldn't get close to God on our own. God sent his son to bear his own wrath and judgment. Why? So that sinners like you and me could draw near with boldness to the throne. Jesus's name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He took that first step. So if you feel like you're not close to God, if you feel like you haven't been close to God, if you want to get close to God, if you know that this is important now, if you've never been close to God and you want to meet him and have a relationship with him, there's only one name. There's only one person. There's only one way to go. But three, it's Jesus. Look to Jesus. Pursue fellowship and intimacy with him. Follow him as he called us to do. Place your faith in him alone. I can't be who I need to be. I have nothing on my own. I need you. Look to Jesus and be transformed. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to give you a minute to pray on your own. Maybe you don't even know what to say. But I want to give you just a little bit, a moment to seek the Lord. And maybe that's what you tell God, that you don't know what to say, that you've been far that you want to repent and turn around. Maybe that you want to know him for the first time.
Let's give you a minute to seek the Lord and to seek his face. God, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear if you are with us. God, I pray, God, that we would not get distracted by all these other things. We wouldn't focus on ourselves so much, but that we focus on you. God, I pray for your grace that you would meet us where we are. God, we know that everything can be different with you in our lives. So God, thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins. Thank you that you made a way for us to approach you. Thank you that we can call you Father and draw near. God, I pray that as your word says, as we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.